Listeners, welcome back to My Yoga Audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan. We are part of freedom. It's in our DNA. It is us, and we have to unpack mindfully and accordingly. Listeners, this is a quote from today's very special guest, Shannon Thompson, the founder and visionary director of the nonprofit Shakti Rising. It's a social change organization transforming the lives of women and girls in the larger community. Shannon is a truth teller, lifelong learner, organizational consultant, and leadership coach. And she pulls from her certifications as a yoga instructor, massage therapist, flower essence practitioner, ordained minister, and training in herbalism, nutrition, energy psychology, aromatherapy, and expressive arts therapy. She lives a life with juicy, fierce, tender, and fiery passion, and her superpowers are loving the unlovable and using her powers for good. Shakti Rising is her destiny, her dharma, and her daily choice. Shannon, welcome. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. Well, Megan, it's it's really, truly my honor and, and a bit of a surprise to hear my bio read back to me or an opening quote, right, that I can be like, I said that? Because I was going to ask you, who said that? That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the things that can come out of us sometimes and live on and we're not even aware of the impact of, you know, the things we've said and the things we've done and For everyone who's listening, Shannon and I met about five years ago through the organization I just mentioned that she founded, Shakti Rising. And since that time, we've continued to work together. I volunteer and teach for the organization whenever I can. However, I do also consider Shannon to be a friend and an inspiring leader. She was recently interviewed on the Kayla Davidson podcast, which is called What is Leadership? And I was blown away by the amount of knowledge wisdom and compassion she shared in that episode. It's just over an hour, hour and a half or so long. And so I wanted to encourage listeners to also look up the What is Leadership podcast hosted by Kayla Davidson and listen to that conversation along with uh, the many other good ones there. And as you just said, Shannon, you've done your formal introduction. You know, it's listed on your website and goes with you everywhere when you're teaching, just so listeners can kind of have a starting point on your background of who you are Um, getting to know you. But I wanted to know if you would tell us in this moment who you are outside of that formal definition and kind of what is the first thing on your heart that you want to share about what is important to you right now? Well, it's such a beautiful invitation into the conversation. You know, it's funny because I don't, I don't feel like that bio is very formal right? It's talking about me being a truth teller and a troublemaker and a wild card. And, and that, those are things that my friends would say, as well as people who work with me would say, right, across the board. And there are things that took me a long time to catch up with about myself, to use my own slang. You know, I, we tend to think, right, that we're, um, we are normal to ourselves. 
And therefore, we don't always recognize that something we're doing is not what everyone else does. So I think in this moment in time, you know, living now in these Appalachian mountains, I feel really attuned to roots. I feel my own roots, like my teacher's teacher's. And my family lineage, way beyond what I know of my family lineage. And I feel the roots of women's work and liberation work. And and really, I feel the roots of, this might sound um, outrageous for me to say this right now, but of the joy of being alive, the great gift of life. That's really present for me. I, I also feel like when you ask what's on my heart right now, I have to say I'm a little bit weary and not in a downer way, I'm a little weary of all the excuses that people make for why it can't be different. Because I feel like looking at the world at this moment in time, if you can't see that it is within our grasp for it to be so radically different, I, th- I think that there has to be some part of us who's really committed to it not changing if we're unwilling to see that indeed it's we we made it up so far why can't we make it be something different so i think that that i'm a little tired of it all i'm a little ready for people to a couple of weeks ago we had an amazing popular educator come to shakti and do um a training for us and i said to him yeah it's about us getting up in it and that's what's really alive for me still 35 years later the idea of getting up in it <laughs> The chills, and I, I probably get this at least every episode that I do when someone says something in that under my sweater here, my hair is all standing up because my next question was going to be asking you about Shakti rising. And I feel like in your, your you know, the, the beginnings, I feel like what you're saying now, yes, still 35 years later, this work is so important. It's ongoing. And I wondered if you could take listeners back a little bit to those original roots, I want to come back to everything you talked about just now and in present day. And for my understanding of Shakti Rising was it was more to supplement traditional recovery programs for women who are coming out of recovery programs. And it's now morphed into this much bigger program that's accessible to women and girls everywhere. I wondered if you could share the arc of progress, both both from what kind of sparked it initially in the beginning and how it's transformed And then how it is now, like, what does it look like now, 35 years later, still connected to those roots, but also like what what you're seeing and living and breathing and feeling in these days? Yeah, well, Shakti is actually only 21. She'll turn 22 this year, but I started doing the work when I was 18 years old. So I've been doing work like this, which is most people don't know. I love hearing other, this is one of the things that is the most tricky and that I really love about Shakti. People have their own stories, their own experience, their own awareness of it. And, you know, I remember way back in, like, let's say 2000, in the first couple of years, being told repeatedly, you have to come up with an elevator pitch. This is too complicated. And, you know, years later, one of my mentors, Michael, would say to me, Shannon, this Shakti shit, it's complicated, right? But he would say to me, he would catch that I was going to apologize because I had been really trained to apologize for it being complicated. And he stopped me and he said, it's supposed to be complicated. What you are addressing is complex. It's not complicated because you're trying for it to be complicated. It's complicated because you're working at the roots of the problem. And he's like, so don't ever apologize for actually having enough guts to go down there and do the complex work. So 
you know, here's the the real short version, Megan, of the story I don't tell often is Shakti actually started as a series of dreams, waking dreams, sleeping dreams, and visions. When I was in my teens, I did not have any idea what I was seeing. But I knew, just like you said, hair on the arms, like this sense in my body that this stuff was important. And so I wrote it down in notebooks and I would call it down. I would call it things like weekends for us, something about leadership and youth. I mean, I had, I could, all I could see was these gatherings and these circles and rituals and classes and workshops. And I knew it had something to do with leadership and I knew it had something to do with like transformation and social healing. But other than just writing it down when this stuff would happen, I really didn't think anything of it. I just followed my life and my own trajectory. And my own life and trajectory, I worked in substance abuse and I taught in high schools and I worked in uh, domestic violence shelters and I taught at the California Youth Authority to male offenders who were gang offenders actually out of LA back in the early 90s. So I was really heavily involved in that. I started the first street-based outreach program for homeless and runaway youth in Sacramento, actually when I was about 21. So my work, I worked, I, I consulted, I became really early. I was known as, I don't know how to say it, but I was a I recognized as someone who could come in and teach other professionals how to really connect with youth, with youth at risk, you know, with the marginalized communities and women. So my work was all over. I worked in corporate. I, you know, by the time I was 25, I was running a a behemoth program that was a statewide juvenile delinquency intervention program that was a massive partnership with AmeriCorps, California State Universities, and YMCAs. At the same time as that was happening, I was on my own spiritual path of soul recovery. So I'd been in recovery since I was 18 and had pursued my own forms of transformation, awakening, healing, really devotion, commitment. You know, my recovery in its simplest form was straight up, you will do what you came here to do or you will die. And that sounds really dramatic, but it was actually not dramatic at all. It was very value free, but it was very clear at 18. I'm going to make one choice or the other. And when I got into recovery, quite honestly, I wasn't saying, okay, I'm going to totally live my Dharma. I was like, well, I know how to get high and I'm pretty clear that I will die very soon if I keep up what I'm doing. So I'm going to go ahead and try this recovery thing out for a year. And if in a year, it's not that, you know, if it's not, if if I'm not awake to why I'm here, then I'm going to go back to using and I'm done. I mean, that was the deal that I made with myself when I got clean at 18. So what's fortunate and powerful for me is from that moment on, I did live my soul work, the reason that I'm here. And and in that, I'm very blessed because since I was 18 years old and I'm now 52, I've been doing what I meant to do, period, no matter what. Even when I when the money didn't work out, when relationships didn't work out, when no one understood, when I mean, believe me, I lost and sacrificed a lot. Friendships, lovers, you know, a retirement fund. I mean, many things. But I will say what I have, who I am, and what I reside in is so much more than all that I lost in my life, right? What I have in my core. But as I followed that and my my work path. When I um, was about 26, I had a pretty profound kundalini awakening and I wasn't trying for it. It just came as a result. I was in a guided imagery music therapy training. As you read, I've done a lot of, I've had a lot of experience and a lot of education and they're both blended together. 
I was in a really powerful training and they were talking about how unusual it was to have a transpersonal experience. And I was one of the lucky ones, <laughs> I guess. And I had such a profound experience that it upended my whole life. And what happened at that moment was the way that I describe it now is that it went from spirituality being like a branch or an aspect of my life to it being the fundamental foundation. There was nothing possible from that moment forward unless I lived from that place. So up until 26, I was able to keep kind of my recovery, my spirituality, my devotion, my commitment separate in a way in the sense that I didn't really talk overtly about it to everyone except for maybe the kids that I worked with or the youth that I was counseling or if I was in classes or courses with people. But I had sort of a, a division in my life. And when I look back, it's because I was trying to protect the people that uh, cared about me because I knew they were already freaked out about how out there I was. And I knew they were going to be even more freaked out if I told the whole truth, right? Well, at 26, when this this whole awakening happened, that was over. That just went out the window, you know? And so suddenly, and I was not sure at that moment in time, I thought I was done working with youth. And I felt like the work I had done in the, what would now be called social justice, activism, that world, let's just call it transformational world. I thought it was complete. And so that was my first time of a dark night of the soul and really giving everything up, everything up with no idea of what was going to come. And that is actually when Shakti Rising started, was in 1997. And it started because I was living in a small town by the beach. And I was really lonely. I didn't have any friends. I mean, you might imagine it was kind of a pretty intense time. And I was going to herb school and doing massage training and doing a bunch of stuff just for myself. I was none of this, you know, I was taking a yoga, I finally did my yoga teacher training program. All of these things I was doing, thinking that finally, I was having a chance to drop deeper into things I'd been practicing for my own recovery for like seven, eight, nine years, right? So it was kind of, um, I don't know how to say this, but it felt like a lark. Like I was being given this free pass to go do all these things I wanted to do, right? But at the same token, I really wasn't sure what was up in my life. And I could tell that while there was an internal and an external pressure to make decisions, right? To do something. I knew that wasn't right. I knew that this weird limbo that I was in, I was supposed to stay in it and just stay with it. And so one Friday night I was doing my laundry and I was really lonely for some kind of company. And the only person I really knew was, the, this makes me sound really pathetic, but um, the only person I knew in this little town was a barista at this coffee shop. And unbeknownst to me, this was the youth hangout and so it was a Friday night. Also, I was living in a, such a weird limbo. I didn't even know it was a Friday night. So I show up at the coffee shop to have a conversation with the barista. And I see that it's overrun by like, I don't even know, 18, 19, 20 somethings. And I'm like, I'm out of here. And, but he sees me, the barista, and he says, oh my God, my, my roommate Forrester's here. And he's an activist and he's really burned out. And it would be super awesome if you would go talk to him. And I was like, oh my God, I don't want to be in this coffee shop right now, you know, but I'm like, okay. So I go, I sit down, we start having this really lovely conversation for us. There's this amazing young man who is an environmental activist, really cool human. We talked about gardening and farming and all kinds of things that lit me up. And all of a sudden, unbeknownst to me, I start telling him about these visions that I've had about this, what I am feeling like now, because I've been doing the work for a long time, I'm feeling like it's this program that is about youth leadership, but also healing and transformation and really 
transforming the way that we're approaching activism in general. Because what I've witnessed is the wounding, the real powerful wounding in leaders, the people who are, and the very polarizing, now this should all be ringing a bell because it's happening right now, right? The real polarizing dichotomies and the fact that we are never going to be able to lead our way into unknown territories if we don't do the internal work to actually lead our way into unknown territories because we will keep repeating the patterns we know. So I'm telling him these, I start telling him about these visions and dreams. Well, while I'm telling him, which I've really not talked about, there's a young woman who's flittering around like a butterfly, smoking clove cigarettes and talking to everybody and, you know, knows everybody. All of a sudden, she comes and sits like right next to me, like practically on my lap. Now, back then, people did not do that. Okay. I was not like the come sit next to me if you don't know me person. And definitely don't hug me and get up in my personal space. But she was right up in my personal space. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, hello. Like, and she says to me, I heard what you're talking about. I'm going to start that program with you. And I laughed and I said, okay, honey, in, the, in, in that kind of a condescending way, okay, honey, I'm not doing that right now. Like, I'm just sharing about something that, you know, I've seen. She's like, no, I, I really, I'm going to start this. This is needed. Youth need this kind of a program. Some kind of an exchange like that happens. And Megan, I remember saying to her, listen, I would have to break up with my boyfriend in order to do this. And I'm not willing to do that. Okay, so three days later, I get a letter in the mail from my boyfriend breaking up with me. And a week later, my house that I lived in at the beach is overrun by that young woman and her friends. So that's how Shakti started. I say that the first two years, that was 1997, and the first two years were like the incubation when I was pregnant with the vision. And so, you know, I was kind of in denial like I was pretending like I was just like, I'm just mentoring these youth. And they were like 18 to 25. And we were doing, and I was teaching them about herbs and cooking and running expressive arts therapy groups and doing transformational counseling and coaching and helping them to get into college and just doing all the things, right? Like all these pieces, teaching them about money and health and relationships and doing spiritual cool stuff. But it was all just me saying to myself, I'm just being a mentor. These, these, somehow these people are, these young folks are talking to each other. They're telling each other about me. Well, then suddenly the word starts spreading. And now I'm getting like 18 year old heroin addicts on my doorstep who nothing has worked for. And they want me to be their mentor and 21 year old heroin addicts and, and then their boyfriends and then their friends and then their meth addicts. And I'm like, you know, but the whole time I'm still in denial that this is anything more than the word has gotten out, you know, that I live here. This goes on until the summer of 1999, and at, at which point I was at a flower essence training because I'm a flower essence practitioner. And it, in the course of that week of being up there in the mountains, I knew that this was it, that it was happening, that I literally had a waking vision that my destiny showed up on my doorstep. So then I made the decision and moved into the first house. So Shakti wasn't actually about, it wasn't even about recovery. It, it wasn't just about that. It was about understanding that we needed to have a transformational, that, that there needed to be an approach to healing that was transformational, but also understanding about the leadership development and that a lot of what was showing up in our youth or young women, which is what Shakti ended up, you know, being focused on, that it was actually for all of us, that it's about society at large, and that 
that really this whole idea we have about who the helped and the helper are, like that's fucked up. <laughs> I mean, it's just not accurate, right? So it was this experiment right from the start about where transformation intersected with radical education and where that intersected with leadership. And actually at its core, what Shakti has been from the beginning is an education program, a grassroots education program for women and girls. And we've been teaching about herbs and um, health and body and healing and money and jobs and philanthropy and work and leadership. And then of course, personal development, because at the core, like I talked about my realization that if we don't do the work individually and together, then we cannot face the kind of work that there is in front of us, like right here, right now, conversations about reparations. If we can't handle our own stuff, then we cannot navigate together the depth, the intensity, and the frankly, the, the hundreds of years of untold wounding that need to be held powerfully to heal right? So this is not a woo-woo. I want to be really clear that Shakti never, one of the things that makes me the most nervous about Shakti is sometimes when I feel like people think that it veers too much to personal process. That is not what I'm about. I'm actually really utilitarian. I know that people need to do their personal process to show up in community. Like I know that we have to do enough of our own work to be accountable, to handle the kind of difficult conversations, interactions, relationships, to change how business is done, to change how we do money, to change how we handle health and wellness, to really stand up to the misogyny that's baked into everything in our society. We have to have enough internal capacity and fortitude. But that sometimes people use that like navel gazing. And so that's one of the most difficult things for me about Shakti is that so the reason, like you spoke into, one of our programs was an apprenticeship program for young women, 15 to 30 years old. And I mean, and I think the reason that that's the program that people have understood and gravitated to so deeply, first off, because Shakti's complicated. So our social change theory, right, is a little complex, but also because we all long for that. We actually all long to have been raised up in a village to know who we are and what our work is in the world and to be equipped to go out and do it. And that's really at the core of what the apprenticeship was about, right? So, you know, our social change theory, and I'll just speak into this, because what's alive in Shakti right now is the broader facing. So there's three prongs of it. One of them was I knew that we are not going to make cultural change if we don't reach the next generation, hence the apprenticeship program for young women. Working with young women, many of whom who I see as the canaries in the coal mine, so, you know, a lot of them are trying to opt out. They're just, they're not down for what's going on collectively, socially. And so they end up self-destructing. So I'm like, we got to get in there and work with those young women because they are going to help change culture from their age forward. The kids that they raise, the people that they interact with, right? The second prong is around radical grassroots education that is embodied, experiential, and teaches us to unpack enculturation. Because a lot of what's out there, we don't even question what the assumptions are behind it. And so we don't recognize that even in things like where people say, well, business isn't personal, you know, it's professional. Well, have you examined the constructs that underlie all of what we say is, quote unquote, business as usual? There are actual constructs embedded in those economics that are harmful to women in, in some cases, to the environment and to a great many other people. So, so this grassroots education is really critical. And then the third tier of it is working with leaders, 
and systems to restore what I call feminine practices, feminine ways of leading, organizing, and doing business as usual. And that's really like Shakti now, because like you said, it's evolved and grown and it's in so many places. Our big focus, I would say organizationally right now, is around Shakti Feminine University. It's really getting this education out there and equipping women of all walks of life to be in classes together and together making these powerful connections and shifts in perspective and the realization that not only can we do it differently, we need to and we want to. So I know that was a long-winded answer and you probably will have to edit some out. But <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's really good. I'm I'm thinking over my questions. I'm thinking, wow, you've actually addressed several of the things that I wanted to go into with you and from knowing you and working with you in so many capacities over the last several years. And and I know that you're a visionary and you've just explained all of that to everyone. So I want to pause actually to just thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that with everyone. Cause I know you said you don't share it often. And on this, it's not like I have a million listeners, maybe I will someday, but to share that with people, you know, potentially hundreds of people who, who listen to this is big. And I appreciate that 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 personal take on it. And I just know that you feel deeply and you feel human consciousness deeply and your sense of what is needed, but not just wanted by the collective is very strong, very in tune. And now that we've, you know, we've talked over the last year, the decade, you know, that was 2020. And now we're, I think this episode is actually going to launch the weekend of the equinox of, of spring equinox of 2021. So kind of to continue on some of the points that you brought up and what you just said, when we've spoken about inclusivity, diversity, equity, you know, doing this hard work, talking about reparations, and as someone who has been doing this work already for decades, and I'm sure a lot of what you feel is kind of like, wow, the rest of the world is kind of now waking up to what I've been trying to say for so very long, your entire teaching career. What are you seeing Actually, I'm going to skip right to the end. What do you think is the answer? And I think you've given us a little bit of that. Like, I know there is no ultimate answer. I just know you're going to have something to say about what that solution is in terms of what Shakti, right? The the prongs you just mentioned. And if you can interweave that in with how you think activism and the things that propelled you and compelled you to get Shakti off and running, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, and then what you're seeing now, like how are youth, the youth that you work, not just youth, but everybody you're working with, what are the differences you're seeing between then and now? And maybe some of the, this is such a multifold question, some of the aha moments that you've seen through the apprentices, through people who've gone through your programs. I mean, I can speak personally that every single webinar, in-person, from a free gratitude circle to a five day long retreat weekend, all of every single one of those experiences has been life transforming for me and that I'm so grateful for. And as you said, I felt like life couldn't actually really return to the way it was before after that. Like I had to be able to figure out how to live in that space that you helped create for all of us. Anyways, I'm (laughs) going off on a a tangent of my own experience and I don't want to dwell on that. I just wanted to 
emphasize for listeners that I have been through not every single Shakti program, but many of them from just, you know, an hour long gratitude circle to very intensive multi-day things. And I believe they're really valuable. So I'd love to know more of your thoughts on, you know, then and now and, and some of the things you've witnessed. Well, I think you started off by saying, what's the, do I have a sense of the answer? And I would say that I don't have enough hubris to actually think that I do. <laughs> but, but I do, you know, I, I feel like here, my response to that would be, I actually feel like it would be so beneficial if so many of us stopped trying to have an answer about where we think it, we should go. So, so this is going to be, I might get myself into a little bit of hot water here and I'm just going to ask the listeners to bear with me and to follow this mess. Cause I'm being real. I'm being very real in this moment. So what I think is happening currently, and I think this happens a lot, is we get a sense of what the solution is supposed to look like. And then without meaning to, we get very rigid about it. And in the rigidity, we actually replace some of the harm that occurred to get us to where we are. And so, you know, in the last year, I've been, as I've been witnessing and watching one of the things that's been the most difficult for me is watching everyone. And I understand why I have fatigue too. I mean, the work that I do has meant that we've been doing more. I mean, going harder, working longer because more women have had need, especially because we teach financial resilience courses and we do a lot of coaching and support for women in business, as you know. And it's really not just about tactics. It's also about taking care of them and their culture and their staff and being resilient and coping in their community. I mean, it's really that whole person. So so what I'm going to say, what I'm going to say next is not because I'm not exhausted also, but you know, I'm so tired of everyone talking about being over it. And every time I hear, meaning they want to be over 2020, right? We want it to be over. And it's like, to me, that's really disappointing because there's an opportunity in what's happening to actually really evaluate and make change, to start to look into what can be. And when I hear folks just focused on getting through it, it reminds me of what I just said to you is like, we have some end goal in mind. We've already made up our minds what it's supposed to look like on the other side, which says to me, we're skipping ahead of this important part of living into it being different. Every time we take on the conversation and the, I am so relieved and grateful that we are talking about racism overtly and oppression and misogyny and that it that it sparks up and then it seems like maybe it quiets down and then it sparks up again, that we're not letting the conversation be sidelined. Like I just want to say that that is so critical to me and I'm so grateful for all the voices, the voices that have been saying it for decades and the new voices that will now say it, hopefully for decades until it's different, right? One of the things that is challenging for me is the importance of us, you know, that quote, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. I'm, and I'm saying it a little bit not accurate entirely, but the sentiment is true. If we don't understand the roots of where we've come from or what we're building on, then sometimes we waste time recreating the wheel. So one thing that I'm witnessing is that I see this a lot in resilience. I'm going to take a sidestep for one second. When I started in the field, the then catchphrase, which was very cutting edge, was talking about um, risk and protective factors. It was research that came out in the 70s that was really identifying critical things you know, about how we were going to work with youth and with communities about risk 
and protective factors. Well, flash forward now, there's a whole huge field of resilience, but people who are speaking about resilience today in some cases act as if they don't recognize the language of risk and um, protective factors. And that right there means there's a recreation of the wheel, right? We're sitting in rooms together, acting as though we're not saying the same thing to each other because some people might be using this risk and protective factor language and some are using resilience language. They actually are saying the same thing, but they're debating about the way to speak about it. To me, that's a waste of time. Because if we're already agreeing about where we want to go, which is to make communities more resilient, then do we need to debate about what we're going to call it? Or can we do the damn work of making the changes? And that's the thing that I want to see happen around racism and anti-oppression work. We need to make serious changes in, in between individuals, in the systems, across the board. And that's going to require a lot on all of our parts. So I feel like I see rigidity in people and they're having their conversations because they're scary conversations, because they're bringing up a lot of stuff in us with each other. We don't know how to move forward. We don't know how to take it on. When people talk about reparations, it seems like, oh my God, how do you do that? When that's, when what has happened is so horrific, how do you ever repair that? Right. And that's where I feel like my grounding in understanding about healing from trauma individually and in communities is so critical because I know that our system is always moving toward repair. And I also understand that there's always a time before the trauma. There's a core part of us that the trauma doesn't degrade. And we have to do the work on that too. Right. We have to build solutions from that place while addressing what is so which includes the difficulties and the trauma and the racism and the oppression and the shit that has to change. But we have to do it from the core that is whole, that the joy of being alive is a part of the work, right? It's part of what we're paying forward. So I have a lot of hope about what's happening right now, but I want to see everyone really roll up their sleeves and get down and dirty and get up in it and stop debating about it. And I really want to see people take the conversation off of social media and into their damn communities. Have it with the people that you know, and really just because, you know, relationships move at the pace of trust. It takes time to make change. So flinging around your opinions on social media, who cares? There's no courage in that anymore. Like, why don't we actually take it to the streets and take it to the places that are the hardest and 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 just do the best we can to show up as humans, right? That's really what I see in the work. And, and I want to see it in corporations and I want to see it systemically and I want to see money directed to black women in business. And I want to see our governments and our community get behind the folks that need and deserve the support the most. They should not need to say one more thing about why we need to stand up and have their backs. Like, the case is made as far as I'm concerned. It's all about, it's about how do we get in line and make it happen. I love you. I love you. I'm just trying to not get emotional because I'm remembering our phone calls last year and you would seem to know when I needed to hear from you and just check in, like, how are you doing? But just person to person, you know, woman to woman, like things are overwhelming right now and I get that. So let's just chat and I what we walked for like a couple hours one night on the phone. I came home, sat on my couch. So starting with those conversations, as you said, we're all on social media to one degree or another, but having actual conversations with real people and just starting with the people that 
you know, right? If it's going to be scary, then the people you already know and love, that's a little less scary than your neighbor who might have a different political affiliation or something like that. Like whatever we want to call it, we have to stop looking for excuses to not do the actual work. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thank you for that, Shannon. And I know you, I want to kind of move in a slightly different direction, which may be related to this. We'll see how it weaves in, but you made a huge move last year, relocating with your partner clear across to the other side of the country from the West Coast to the East Coast. I think you drove the entire way too. And I'd love just for people to hear more about that journey. Like, what is your life like now in your new home? What were the decisions that kind of impacted such a huge move, you know, for you personally and for, and, and in in terms of Shakti, I know Shakti is always growing. It's in regions and places all over the U.S. and the world for that matter. So I'm, I'm curious about the influence on that too. Well, we moved to Appalachia, to the mountains of North Carolina on my 50th birthday, actually. So two years ago, January of 2019. Is that true? Um, like all things in my life, it was spirit-led. I mean, that really is the truth of how I lead, live. And you know that. It's how I lead. It's how I live. It's what I do. And it's big decisions and little decisions. I mean, there's no compartmentalization. We were out here for work the fall before in 2018. And a couple of things happened. My husband found out that actually he was the first in his generation or the first in his family on either side to be born out of Appalachia. And he did not know that until that moment he had thought he was Californian. And it was huge, as you might imagine. And this, at the same time, he found out that there was a program in storytelling and a degree program at a university and multiple of the deans at the university met him. And he's, he's a magically talented, incredible man and human, as you know. And he had been studying storytelling well over a decade on his own, studying with different teachers and pursuing it and had no idea that, I mean, of course, what we find out, right, it, it was his roots. It's part of the Appalachian um, culture, like really deeply part of this culture. So at the time we had been on the road and in fact, we had driven back and forth across the country, I think five times in the last, like in three years or something back and forth. So I was traveling a lot for work for Shakti. I was, I really like to travel by car because I like to live and be connected to the earth and communities and the connection of the roots, the people along the way is really critical to me. And it's very easy to live this life of jet setting, you know, flying all around in an airport. And you just, you, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I clearly fly to Hawaii and sometimes I fly to see my folks in California. So I'm not trying to say never fly, but I really try hard not to fly unless I have to, because I really feel that traveling at the pace that my body can move and being connected to the land that I'm traveling and the people that I'm traveling is important. So in any event, we were at the time doing a lot of traveling and I saw what was happening for him. And I said, Hey, babe, you're never going to learn about being Appalachian in California. Do you think you might want to move there? And not really, really getting um, the implications of that. And I said, you know, because I can travel from anywhere. I can fly if I need to for the for work, you know, from anywhere. And then he was kind of uncertain. It was a big move on his own part. So I f- f- found us some temporary housing for a couple of months so that we could come back and he could check out applying and see if he wanted to go and what that would all entail. And in short order, what happened is he 
realize that he really meant to go there. So, and I knew right away, like when we came back and applied, when he started applying for school and I was watching what was happening there in 2019, I realized we're going to be there for a little while. I had that feeling, but the place that we were then was really the wrong community for me. And so I was like, wow, maybe it wasn't me who's meant to be here. It's him. And then I had a dream about a town called Marshall and told my landlady. And I thought I was dreaming about a town where we used to live because I lived in Point Ray Station and there's a little town called Marshall. And I said to her, wow, I'm really homesick. I had a dream about a town called Marshall. And she said, oh my God, there's a town. There must be a town called Marshall everywhere. There's one about an hour away from here up in the hills on the river in North Carolina. And I didn't quite put two and two together, but I'm so stoked that my husband is very hip to my intuitive abilities and he gets it long before I do sometimes. And long story short, three weeks later, he had me up here looking at two places. It's impossible to find houses to rent here. And we were offered both. And I knew, I just knew right away that that not only were we meant to live here, but that also Appalachia, that I am apprenticing to Appalachia, that there is something really profound happening for in the geography in the culture. And then I found out, you know, then I realized that I'll, most of my teachers, like the people who, because uh, I'm a trained teacher as well, although I never got my teaching certificate, I did the courses. But some of my teachers came out of this area. This is where their work came from. So it's been a really profound, both of us coming back to roots in different ways. And also the Appalachia, um, part of who it was settled by was Scotch-Irish, and that's part of my lineage. And I don't know if you know this, but my husband found out shortly after we were here that apparently the land mass that makes up these mountains way, way, way back was part of the land mass that makes up the mountains in Scotland and Wales. So how amazing that the people from that land right, found their way back to their own homeland here long before the science or geography. Like, it just reminds me so much of what one of my husband's teachers, Martin Shaw, says, which I really appreciate, is, you know, there's all this focus on where we came from, as though that's the most primary question, but what about where we belong to now? And I I think about this a lot, you know, from being in Shakti, that I teach about that a lot, that you know, the cho- the choice to belong, the recognition that we belong, right, to life, to the land that we're in, to the body that we're in, to the life that we're leading, that's something that we do from the inside out. So it's it's really powerful for me, this being here in this region that is the roots of so much work, and especially when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, civil rights, organizing, and activism. I mean, came out of the South. And I feel incredibly blessed to be living in a region and learning at the feet of people who've been doing it for 150 years, right? Like, it's a real gift in my life right now, you know, in my beginning of elderhood, to be returned to the seat, to be in what I consider a, a pretty incredible place and space to learn about human humanity and community and the way we want to live. That's homecoming on so many levels. So like more than even about each one you, you brought up, it's like, like pre glacier times, right? Like when you look at the Scottish Highlands and finding that connection to the landmass and that people actually found that place. And you know, that initially the move was maybe, 
initiated by your, you know, your husband's itch to return home and discover that and go on a new educational journey, but that it's also for you too. Of course it is. And that you dreamt of the place where you now live, where no houses are ever available. But of course, one was there waiting for you. These are all the confirmational signs that we look for, you know, in the universe saying that this is, you know, you're following the path that you're meant to, because these things just happen, you know, organically, like, oh, of course, everything's working out just fine, which leads me to, so we're talking about homecoming and then starting from that healing from the inside out and belonging. And so of course the podcast is called My Yoga Audio. So the conversation always comes around to yoga, which is to yoke. And as you know, as a teacher, there's so many branches, right? So many limbs of yoga. So what what is yoga for you now? Because I know you've been teaching forever, you've been practicing forever. And so I always reiterate, it's not just about poses on the mat. You and I have a close connection over the nine gates of yoga program that you created and that I teach sometimes and I just adore. But how is yoga showing up in your life right now? And what, what is it to you? Wow, I love that question. I wish I could remember how I felt when I first found yoga as a teenager, right? I, and like, because it, it's a vague memory. It's a, it's a, it's a memory that's so far off that I, I'm going to put a lot of filters on it, right? But I wish that I could feel that feeling again and ask that young me, are you recognizing right now how big of a deal this is going to be in your life, right? Did I know? I don't know what I knew. I know I was compelled by it from this in the seventies watching Hatha yoga on, I think it was PBS or Saturday mornings. And I was obsessed, you know, I think my family was like, wow. And then I wanted to like read this black and white yoga book. I self-taught my, just trying to teach myself, which is how I tried to teach myself Buddhist meditation in the beginning too, when I was 15 or 16, but we'll save that for another time because that was really fun. But um, when it first, you know, was a it was a foundational part of my recovery. So that's in my first relationship with it. That and meditation, really, it was so cornerstone to me in the sense of healing my relationship with my body and yoking body to spirit, right? And then it was foundational in me being able to show up to live my dharma because actually showing up for my soul's calling as joyful and incredible as it is, it's also hard. It's difficult. It's hard on the body to live the bigness that each of us really is. And that doesn't make us wrong. We have this weird conversation right now that if there's anything wrong with you, then you're not taking good enough care of yourself. And I'm just going to call bullshit on that right now. That might be true. Only you know this. It also is true that we have all these environmental stressors, all these technology stressors, and there's just, it's just being human has a, you know, our bodies are these soft, tender, they're tough, but they're frail too, right? So so it's been something that I return to. It's been something that is a source of liberation for me. It's been something that's a source of comfort for me. It's a way that I've healed myself and my own body. You know, I mean, sometimes I'll wake up in my sleep and I will be doing a yoga, a series of yoga postures in my sleep. And it's incredible, like really in otherworldly incredible. Like the things that happen in my yoga practice when I'm sleeping are so much cooler than what happens in my waking yoga practice. I just want to say that. <laughs> but I just, it's so cool that you're asking me this question because you know that yoga is woven in and throughout Shakti, not just in classes. It's really embedded in, I mean, at the beginning of meetings, it's, it's just embedded throughout, you know, and not just the asanas of yoga, the practices of bhakti yoga and raja yoga, like really karma yoga, seva yoga, it's really important. It's baked into our work. But 
just in the last couple of days, my the style that I got my teacher training in is Savrupa yoga, and it was not what I practiced. So 1998 is when I finally went and got my did my yoga teacher training. It was profound, like just profound. And I understand so much more about why that was the practice, but I was guided to that. And it wasn't what I had done as my, like my own, what I went to classes for. And so it was very strange to be like, why am I doing this very slow, prop heavy, like, why is this the 21 day practice? And anyway, the thing that I wanted to share with you is just in the last couple of days, a friend of mine shared with me that they were using Savrupa Yoga to address hot flashes and to navigate menopause. And I'm just now having my first hot flashes. And so I was like, oh my God, here I took Savrupa Yoga and it was so much a huge part of the work I do with trauma. So like, let me just tell the punchline is like why that was the teacher training one is because that was the, one of the very first trauma informed and also bliss oriented and what is now a lot called yin or restorative. That was some of the very first work. Rama, the teacher had developed it because she saw that people in the West were hurting themselves doing all this yoga. They were overstretching all the time that it was becoming performance and not about the yoking. So here I was, you know, trusting the divine, taking what would enable me to teach people about trauma-informed practice, you know, back in 1998. So before this was popular jargon. But now I'm finding out that this actually is this practice is really going to be helpful and serve me in navigating this threshold. And so isn't that cool? Like that just, a friend of mine just was like, you've probably never heard of this practice before, but um, it's really fantastic. And I just got that feeling, right? The hair on my arm stood up and I was like, oh my God, is she going to? And then she's like, you need to check out Savrupa Yoga. And I was just like, wow. Okay. I think we, we need to say that again. Savrupa, I have not heard of this before. So for listeners who are looking for a way to practice yoga that could aid with you know, menopausal transitions. Am I saying it right? Savrupa, yeah. S-V-A-R-O-O-P-A. And the founder, Rama Birch, I believe she's on the East Coast now. She's a true, true uh, yoga disciple, like really lives the heart of yoga. I was very blessed and graced to be in her extremely rigorous and very high integrity training back in the day. That is, I love hearing that. So how do you know? Because you don't see, you didn't see all these questions beforehand. So the last question that I was going to ask you about was, we're recording this during Women's History Month. So I was going to ask you to tell us about some of the women in the course of your lifetime who have inspired you. So Rama would seem to be a good one to start with that just created some Svarupa yoga. And you've mentioned a few people throughout our conversation, so I don't want to discount that. But if there's anyone else that comes to mind that you think listeners, any books you recommend through Shakti programs or people that you've met, or maybe people who nobody knows, but like we need to look them up and learn more about them. (laughs) Why aren't there so many of those, right? I call that the ordinary heroes that get overlooked, you know, and and one of the problems with that is it makes all the rest of us think that if we don't do something that makes us famous, then it's not enough. And that is so not true, especially in today's day and age when you, to be famous, you can have style, but no substance, right? I mean, we're seeing this over and over again. So I just want to say to people, like, it is difficult in our society 
to navigate from the inside out about what really matters. But I just want to say, if you can surround yourself with people who shine back to you, reflect back to you, what's real and that you matter and what you really can do together and dream those dreams, then that's what's going to last. That's the legacy that lasts. Fame is temporary. Not always, but sometimes, right? So when you ask me, I have to first say uh, my grandmothers. My grandmothers were hugely important in my life for what they taught me and what they, how they raised me and what they gave me and also for the struggles that they had. Because I always think to myself about all the conveniences I have in my life that they did not have in theirs and what they did and how they stood. And it reminds me that I have capacity. And I think it's really important in today's day and age because I think we have a lot of conversation going on about how hard everything is. But I think we forget that there's like 60% of the population in this country that is living under duress. And they they don't have a phrase, let's go back to how it was before, because it's still the same. It's as hard as it always has been. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to know those women. Like those women are our heroes too, right? Those women who've been doing things for so long that we can't even comprehend, that have capacity and endurance because they've had to, not because they set out to choose to, they had to. And that's something that has guided me my whole life. One of my mentors, who's another woman who every woman should know about, we call her Mama Cat. Her name's Catherine Hall. Uh, She started Birthing Project USA because she saw the disparity in Black babies and Black mamas and the fact that they were dying and absolutely... Oh, like disproportionate Yeah, yeah, and and also just like not acceptable, like just straight not acceptable. And she stood up and spoke up about it a long time ago and started this incredible organization. And, you know, Mama Cat always said to me right from the beginning, throw your bucket down, sister, daughter, where you are, throw your bucket down and do the work. So I think that everyone who is so gets caught up in, well, when I have this, then I'll do that. And I'd say to them, this is what Mama Cat said to me, throw your bucket down, sister, daughter, where you are and do the work. If you see it, it's yours to do. So I had an amazing mentor who was named Robin when I knew her and then became Claire Wesley. And she taught me how to do transformation and and the lives, how to create transformation in the lives of people by connecting them to their own magic. And I still to this day say if she would take me back to be her apprentice, I would do it in a hot minute. And then I I want to say Victoria Danzig, who's been a mentor to me through all the years that I started Shakti, an incredible therapist and someone who saw the truth of what Shakti was about right out of the gate, right out of the gate. And she and her husband really took me in to take care of me because they understood that this vision was so much bigger than me. And at the time, I didn't make that easy because I felt like it wasn't about me, but I really didn't get it. I didn't understand that the woman birthing the vision deserves as much care as the vision itself. It took me a long, long, long time to understand that I needed that nurturance and it wasn't taking away from the work. That wasn't making it be about me, right? My own mom, who in retirement has now uh, (laughs) retired and now taken on Helping Guide Shakti. And it has been incredible to get to work alongside of her doing work for women and girls around the world. It's a real incredible gift of healing in our own family because we've had a lot of recovery that we've all needed to have. Um, my grand, One of my grandmothers went, got into recovery before I did and sent me a letter when I went to rehab. It's a really powerful experience to have my grandmother welcoming me into recovery. So to get to do this with my own mom, who without her, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be alive, right? So the, the 
gratitude I have there is endless, you know, for this, for winning the lottery. Oh, Shannon, there's, um, <laughs> we could talk all day and I know that we can't. So I feel like we need to have you back on the podcast in uh, a few weeks, few months, whenever we can find time in your schedule, because we just need more time to talk about the ideas and not just the ideas, the actions you're taking. I'm so moved by all of the things that you've brought up today. Um, you've given listeners so much to think about, to chew on, to decide, you know, where they are in this world of everything swirling around us. I want to remind everybody that Shakti Rising, you can find them on the internet at shaktirising.org. For more information, of course, they have all the social channels, and I'll put links to those notes in the show notes. But for the most part, Chen, I just want to say thank you, and that I appreciate you so much, and I do consider you one of my mentors and leaders and guides and respect you tremendously, and I'm just so honored that you uh, were able to come on to the podcast today and just share this little tidbit of yourself and this amazing organization that is literally changing lives. You are a gift. So thank you for that. Now I'm all, you can't tell I'm blushing. I feel like um, <laughs> it's really, it's my honor to be with you. I adore you. And these are the kind of conversations that are the gifts of being in my fifties now, taking time and space to reflect on this. So thank you for giving yeah. me the chance to do that. Yes, you're welcome. You're welcome. This was a joy. And listeners, stay tuned. We will have another very special episode coming up that will be an interview with a guest, but I'm also going to be doing one-on-one -on -one session, a webinar with some information that's going to be coming up in one of our upcoming episodes. There's going to be new music, more people that we're going to talk to. We'll follow them up with blog posts. And so I want to encourage you to continue to listen closely and expand exponentially because it's always a great time for your mind to be on the mat. <music>